If you have your Bibles with you, um, our passage for this evening is 1 Peter 2, verse 9 to 12. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 to 12. And let me explain, just for those of you who are maybe new to the context of church, maybe this is your first time in a church, the reason we come to this particular book is we believe it's God's word for us, that there's something of his nature revealed in the lives of people over the years, and we have this kept in this particular book in which we have a way to live that is more like the God that we worship and therefore better than the life that we see portrayed in the world. So we come to learn from what this book says and what God wants to say to us through it. So 1 Peter 2 verse 9 to 12. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against the soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him who punish those who do wrong and to condemn those who do right. And I've just realized I read beyond verse 12. Sorry, that last bit wasn't actually part of what I'm preaching on this evening. We'll ignore that because we're fallible humans and we did a whole series on the fact no perfect people allowed, so we get things wrong. Boom. Start with a mistake, and then you're not, you've not got high expectations for the rest of the message. That's what I say. So I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story about a woman called Katie. And a while ago, um, a couple of months ago maybe now, I, I told a story about um, a football team that we set up. I'm sorry I keep bringing it up, but it was in Andover, which was the church we were at previously. And and during this football team, the the heart and idea behind it was, as guys, we wanted an opportunity to play football. I'm not going to lie, that was certainly part of the heart behind it. But we also wanted to reach um, people that would never set over the threshold of a church for various reasons. They didn't like the institution or whatever that is. So we set this football team up, and we realized that whenever, for some reason, and you may notice, if you've ever played Christian football or witnessed it from the sidelines, you'll notice that for some reason, when Christians get together to play football, they put all of their good conduct and Christian sensibilities aside and go on with knuckle dusters and swords to play the game. I have no idea why, but you get Christians together playing football, and it's the most aggressive football I've ever seen in my entire life. And I say that as a joke because it is funny to a certain extent, but at the same time we realize that can't be the witness that we give to these guys that are coming along to join us. We had a lot of um, guys from youth hostels who had been involved in prison and various other things that were joining us to play football. In fact, when we played the police team, the police knew most of our players quite intimately because they had at point put them in, church, in, in cells. That was what we were saying. This is the church team with prisoners and various other people. But we used to pray at the start of the game. We'd play, and then we'd pray at the end. The idea was that Jesus would be the center of all we did. And afterwards, we'd always go along to our local pub, where we'd, we wanted to continue to foster this community, because we realized that often in these football teams, people would play for a little bit, and then they would go away, and that would be it. There would be no sense of community. It was just in and out kind of experience of, of community. We really wanted to foster this community. So we go back, and as we're, we're, we're at the bar, we meet this, the barmaid called Katie. 
And she works there on a fairly part-time basis. Her other job is she's a stripper. This is part of her role and her other time she spends there. And, and over time, the more we kind of ordered drinks and got chatting to her, we really got to know Katie. We really came to love Katie. And she really came to love us as a group. She used to come over and just join us. It was a very quiet on a Monday evenings. Most people wouldn't come along to the pub. And she would come and join us and chat about various things. And then there was one night, I remember in particular, in which we were sitting around, and we don't always do this, but we started sharing stories of what God had been doing in our lives. We started talking about the difficult times and how even in the difficult times we had experienced something of God's love. And as we were having these stories, she came over and joined us. And she sat amongst us and she heard some of the things that, that these seemingly nice Christians had gone through. And suddenly it started changing her perspective and she started opening up about her life and her story and she was moved to tears. And I remember she looks at us and she says, do you know what, guys? There's something about you that I like. You're, just, you're different. You're different to the other people that I come in contact with. Maybe it's the fact that we didn't treat her like meat. And we didn't just see her in that objective manner, but we, we took her as a person and loved her. Maybe, and what I hope, is it was something of God reflected in the way we did relationships. Something of his holiness, something of who he is, something of his nature reflected in the way we related to one another, the stories we told. There's a scholar whose, um, whose name I can't remember because I borrowed the book from Clive's office. I wrote the quote down and I can't find it. But he said this, Therefore, holiness is, in the deepest sense, a definition of God's nature as he expects to find it reflected in his children. Therefore, holiness is, in the deepest sense, a definition of God's nature as he expects, it to find, he expects to find it reflected in his children. There must have been, in our imperfections, in the mistakes we made, we weren't a perfect footballing community by any means, shape, or form, but there must have been something within that community that reflected something of God's nature and who he is. So we're in a series on holiness. And let me define um, this term before we move on. Often holiness can be captured as this idea of behavior, can't it? That we focus so much on reaching this area of moral perfection. And that's the aim of holiness. But holiness is so much broader. It captures God's nature as reflected in us. It, It encaptures something of his love, his grace, his compassion, his mercy. When are we being holy? In those moments when you're helping the poor, there is elements of God's holiness expressed in the beauty of those moments. It's not just in being a goody-two-shoes and getting everything right. Bill Burkett, he says this, Holiness is not a single theme or an isolated truth. It is not totally a matter of the inner life, nor is it totally external. It affects every area of our lives. Holiness is not simply a matter of the right language or habits or recreation or clothes or friends. But when it is in the heart, it affects all these things and many more. So the question that I hope we can journey with tonight is this. Do we reflect him? And not do you as an individual reflect him, but do we as a community reflect him? In your small Christian communities, in your small groups, and then as your friends when you go out and spend time together, wherever it may be, do you reflect something of God's nature in those communities? Do we reflect him? So I want us to get stuck into this text. And as I read it, you may have been hearing all these big words, and I can imagine you sitting there going, oh no, he's going to preach one of those really biblical sermons where we have to go through a million different things to understand concepts we don't. 
I realize some of this language can be quite complicated if we're not used to it. So what I want to do is I want to explain and tell you a story. I want to tell you a story of the grand narrative of this particular book. Because when we learn the grand narrative of this book, we see where some of this language is referring to. This idea of a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation, it makes sense when we understand the grand narrative. And there are biblical passages throughout that are the foundation of what I'm going to say when I tell you this story. But I don't want to like shoot you with a million different passages. Instead, if you want to know the passages that found it, chat to me afterwards and we'll book a date in the diary to, to chat more about it. So we begin with the Israelites. The Israelites is this, is this community of, of nomads, people that, that have very little. They weren't particularly impressive in anyone's eyes, let alone God's. They weren't particularly distinct or standing out from other nations in any way, shape, or form. They were this small community used to travel from place to place. And yet, God chose Abraham. He chose his family. He chose this whole nation, this whole group of people, this whole community. He loved them. He loved them like he loved his children, and he wanted to dwell amongst them. But an all-holy God can't be in the presence of, of, of sin. The two are at odds. So how does he dwell amongst his people? He dwelt amongst his people in, in this place, in a particular room. Initially, when they were nomads and traveling around, the room was called the tabernacle. It was like a tent. It was a particular room in which God dwelt that they could then carry and move from place to place. Later on, as they became more established as a nation, he dwelt within the temple, this amazing temple, and one particular room in which God dwelt. But sinful people can't become before a whole holy God, right? So how do they approach this God? They had priests, a particular people appointed who would make sacrifices to atone for their sin, to cover their sin and the sin of the people in order that they could come before this all holy God. So the priest was made holy because of this animal sacrifice. The people were therefore made holy as well, but the people would petition through the priest. If they wanted to come to God, they would come to this, through this particular priest. So then, if you look through the Bible, and, and you know when you get to like Leviticus and stuff like this, I'm sure the book that all of you are really, really familiar with. You know all those, all those rules and regulations that the Israelites have to obey, and you go, really? This stuff is mental. But in the context of the time, it was to make them distinct. They were to reflect something of this God. If you wanted to know who Yahweh was, you are, what's Yahweh like? Look at the Israelite people, because there, his holiness, his nature was reflected in the way they lived. They were distinct from other nations, so that you could see the difference between God and these other gods, because that God was reflected in the particular community. Does this make sense? Are you all still with me? I know it's a hot day, so I'm going to have to keep, keep making sure you're with me. I'm falling asleep and I'm speaking. So the Israelites were called to reflect something of God. So summing this up, the Israelites are a chosen people, they're a royal priesthood, and they're a holy nation. Interesting, isn't it? Those three terms are the three terms that are in verse 9 of our text, in which Peter's referring to the church. So he's saying there's something of this Israelite community at the start of this book that relates to the church today. Then comes Jesus. And what I love about Jesus is he always turns things upside down. He's the complete game changer. He comes in a, a regular Jewish carpenter with no particular status at all that would draw him to anyone. And at the age of, of 30, he begins to draw these 12 disciples around him. He simply calls them to follow him. There's something about his presence. I don't know, something about the things he does, but they follow him. He goes around healing people. He goes around preaching this vision of the kingdom of God. And slowly, 
he begins to get some enemies. He has a lot of followers, but he begins to get some enemies. The religious institutions don't like him. His message is quite contradictory to what they want to say. And the Roman authorities are getting annoyed that the religious authorities are getting annoyed. And they all kind of get a little bit annoyed together. And eventually, he's crucified. The, the, the crucifixion being, being the death of a common criminal. Three days later, he rises again. Later on, the early church starts reflecting on this. And they go, wow, if he was fully God and fully man then this sacrifice is the sacrifice that covers our sin. So the sacrifice that, made Jesus, that Jesus gave on the cross means that actually these priests then that we had in the Israelite community are no longer needed. Why? Because you can go straight to God. Why? Because Jesus died for your sin. A sacrifice is no longer needed. He is the great high priest. He is the ultimate sacrifice. So now you can go straight to God because of what Jesus has done. And then he started reflecting on this and he went, wait a minute, this sacrifice also means that God no longer just dwells in one particular room or one particular place, but he dwells amongst his people, that that he lives within each and every person. Why? Because the temple of God is no longer a specific building, it's no longer a tabernacle, but the temple of God is each and every one of us. God dwells in each and every one of us as Christians. So everything had been turned upside down. The whole way the Israelite community saw their relationship with God, it had been turned on its head. He turned the tables of history. So anyone then who follows this Jesus becomes part of the church. And they're given this new status. They're given this status that the Israelite people had. They are a chosen people. They are a royal priesthood. They are a holy nation. But it looks so different in the way they're called to relate to one another because God dwells amongst us. We are the temple. We are the living stones of this temple. So we're all made holy. So what is holiness? At its base, it is the way in which God chooses to view you. Have we deserved it? No. Are we holy in all our moral attributes? No. But God chooses to view you as holy because of what Jesus has done on the cross. I know this is quite heavy, but when you understand this grand narrative, it should excite you that we are part of this community, part of this adventure with Jesus, part of this, this church. This is what Tim and Sheila have been saying over the past couple of weeks, that our image changes. If you come in here this evening and you're thinking, do you know what, Ross, I'm just worth nothing, mate. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my history. You don't know where I've been. I feel dirty. I don't feel worthy of coming before this God. The image that God gives us, as Sheila said a couple of weeks ago, we are saints in his eyes. He chooses to view us as holy people. How awesome is that? And then Tim talked about the fact that that his story then kind of becomes our story, and our story has changed. So our image has changed, and our story is changed. Do we reflect him? Do we reflect this Jesus who works in us in this way? So we're made holy. It's a status, but there's a sense as well that we're also called, as a form of kind of like practical holiness. In verse 11 it says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. This kind of like cosmic language to talk about this battle between us and, 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 and the frail humanity. The point being, if you want to experience God, You should be able to come into a Christian community and there experience him. Why? Because he dwells amongst us. If you want to experience and know what this Jesus is like, you should be able to come into the church, into our communities, and see something of his nature reflected in us. Oh, Ross, what's this God like, mate? Come to church. Come along on Sunday. Oh, Ross, I've been wondering, this Jesus you keep talking about, how, how do I meet him? What's he like? Come along to our small group. Come and join us at the cafe. Come and see what he's like in our relationships and the way we relate 
to one another? Do we reflect him? So I want to return to this story of Katie. Because I had some awesome conversations with Katie. And, and actually, do you know what? She never, she never kind of became a Christian. It's not a story in that sense. But she was touched by something of the difference, which was exciting. And I don't know the seeds that were sown. But there was one time when we, we, we were, again, I was chatting with a friend uh, to Katie at the bar. And, and she, looked at, she looked at this guy and she said, well, obviously, I mean, this doesn't apply to you, Matt. We'll call him Matt because, because you're not a Christian. I was like, wow. And Matt was like, uh, I... I am a, I'm, okay, I'm one of them. And she's like, no, but I mean, you know, they're, they're proper Christians. I mean, you're not, not really a Christian now, are you? Well, ouch. Imagine if someone said that to you. Like, that would be, that'd be painful. But, but I, I love Matt to bits. But he was a guy who was Christian in name, but not indeed. He, his life demonstrated nothing of what you'd expect um, in any respects, this Jesus to be like. So t- to a certain extent, I can see what she was saying. And you may think, brilliant, Ross, you know, the best thing someone could say to me is that you're not like a Christian. Because if I'm like anything of the stereotypes that other people have of Christians, then I'm really glad they don't think I'm a Christian. But actually, Katie's understanding of Christians were people who were different, people who were good, people who were loved. Imagine if someone said that to you. So in summary, in this, in this whole grand narrative, we something, see something of the fact that holiness is a status. It's something we are. We're made. There's nothing you can do about that as a Christian. You are holy. But at the same time, we're called to be holy, to strive to be more holy, to be more like this Jesus that we worship. Do we reflect him? Is everyone still with me? Just a general head nod so I know you've not kind of fallen asleep. I know it's quite heavy, but it's cool, isn't it? I mean, that's the narrative of the Bible. That's the, the story of the Bible, the God that we worship. So what does this look like practically? I love lots of words in ministry. I love the word tension. I love wrestling. I love nuance. And you may hear me say these words all the time. I basically say them when I don't really know what I'm on about. That's just a heads up. So the word tension, essentially I'm going to use now because there's a massive tension in what this looks like practically. Tension being when you have two ideas that are kind of opposed to each other, but if you lose one of them, then you kind of lose the fullness of of the other. You need them both together, so you kind of hold this tension essentially. And I was in conversation, Finbar didn't know I was doing this. I was in conversation the other week with Finbar. He came into the office, and being an extrovert, I process everything that I bring to you on a Sunday through chatting to some very patient people who put up with me. (laughs) I've been one of those people who put up with me coming in saying, do you mind if I just bounce some ideas off you? And Finbar was one of those people. He'd come in late at night, and I grabbed his brain, and I used it, and it was brilliant. So we had this conversation, and we were talking about this idea of holiness and what this looks like practically. And he was saying... "Um, He's saying, Ross, for me, what really stands out here is actually to be holy, to be more holy in that sense, our focus should be drawing near to God. It should be drawing near to Jesus because it's out of that relationship with the all-holy God that we are made holy, right? And I was like, boom, as I would be because that was a quality point and made complete sense. But then I, the tension arises when I said, but, but there also seems to be something of this fact that we're called to, to kind of choose to be holy as well. There's this free will decision in which we're seen as holy, we're made holy by God, but we're also throughout the New Testament called to kind of live holy lives. And and there's a sense of our involvement in the process as well. So it seems it's both and. Brilliant answer. Balance. I love that. It's God and us. God calls us to be holy. Our status is holy in him, but we're also called to choose to be holy. This is the tension that we have to hold. Do we reflect him? 
So what does this look like in the Christian communities that we live in? This is the question. This is really why I brought this whole series to us over these past coming weeks. What does this actually look like in our Christian communities? And again, I've had more conversations. Fiona was very, very patient with me. James was. There's many, many others of you who've sat and listened to some of this stuff. And the thing that people kept bringing up was this. If I'm saying that it's a kind of practical holiness, in the sense we need to do something, it can sound like I'm saying, well, it's about legalism, right? It's about being the holy police. Anyone know the holy police? It's about being a Pharisee, essentially, that somehow we can accomplish this holiness if we just do a certain amount of things, if we just accomplish a certain way of living. When I was, um, when I'd just become a Christian at the age of 18, when I really kind of committed to my faith, I was certainly at that place. I was part of the holy police. Like generally, I loved God and I was really zealous for him, but if you wanted to be holy, then you could just kind of copy my lifestyle because I was the one doing it best at the time. You know, I, I went around and I would challenge you. I would shout, you really probably shouldn't be saying that, mate. You're a Christian. That was kind of the way I was. I remember I had a, a, a university at the time and I was sharing a room with two other people. Now, if you know sharing a room at university with one person's hard enough, two other people brings out all the flaws in your personality and makes them in this beautiful mess of a relationship that you somehow have in these rooms. I had so tidy, I cordoned off my section of the room because these two were too messy for me. So there's already a lot of tensions arising. I thought I would make this a lot better in a more calm situation by creating a swear chart because I wasn't quite happy with the language that my friends were using. (laughs) So the reason I say this, the reason I say this, there is a point, believe it or not, behind this, is that the problem I found in this was that my focus became not God, but my behavior. Everything I was focused on, my whole faith, became about this Jesus of rules and regulations. I wanted my behavior to change. That's what my faith was based around, was behavioral change. And in fact, somehow I'd forgotten along the line the very simple truth that Finbar told me the other day in a conversation, that in drawing near to him, that change happens naturally, as long as we're willing also to choose to do so and be involved in that journey. Do we reflect him? So let me ask you in closing. In your Christian communities, in your small groups or those groups that you go out locally, are you encouraging one another to draw near to Jesus? Are you encouraging one another to to be more like him, to live these lives? Iron sharpens irons, right? Our our, our, um, vision as a fused community is to foster an open, loving, and authentic community centered on Jesus because we realize it's out of him this holiness in any way is accomplished. Are our communities accountable? This is what I want to finish with. Accountability for me is something that I've, I find is so important. I have numerous people in my life that, that I've, um, it sounds almost arrogant to say, but I've given them permission to challenge me and to speak to me. They're the kind of people that don't need polite sensibility. They just come up to me and say, Ross, you need to sort that out, mate, because that needs to stop. People that, I've, um, that speak to me and help me journey with issues in my life that are, are going contrary to what I believe God is calling me to do against his holiness in many respects. And I was thinking about this the other day, and if we were more accountable, if we knew that we were in relationship with one another, being accountable to one another, that when we came together in community, the focus could truly be Jesus. Because we know that this part of the journey is being involved in. Do we, do people see Jesus in our communities? Do we reflect him? Let's pray.
Father, I realize this tension is so hard to, to get that balance between drawing near to you and then acting, license and legalism. Father, we give this to you. And we pray that whoever enters the doors of this particular building, whoever sees us out and about in, in, in local places with our friends, may they see something of you in our relationships. Challenge us when we need to live more like you. Encourage us and motivate us when we need to draw closer to you. Help us reflect your holiness. Help us reflect your love, your grace, your mercy, your kindness. In Jesus' name. Amen.